is Sit Rep on BFBS with Kate Jabot. week what the defence review means for you and for Britain. I know that some people will feel let down but it would be worse if we put off these decisions. The reaction was stunned silence. I think almost disbelief. It's a nonsense. They're getting rid of the Harriers. Not good at all. The decisions don't get any easier so why not get on and make them where you can to give people certainty about the great capabilities that armed services will have in the future. Headlines. A Taliban commander's claimed British donors provide the bulk of the group's funding. He was filmed planting a roadside bomb designed to kill or injure British troops. The Foreign Secretary William Hague says the claim's very worrying if it's true. A think tank's claiming the poorest will be hardest hit by the government's spending cuts. The Institute for Fiscal Studies says low-income families will bear the brunt. But another think tank said the government's moves are tough, necessary and courageous. Meanwhile, local councils are warning they'll have to make 100,000 people redundant because of the cuts. Their grants will be cut by more than a quarter. Two men have been convicted of murdering a shopkeeper in Huddersfield. Gamal Singh's killers escaped with a few pounds, cigarettes and some sweets. And a senior policeman's broken down as he explained how he tried to save lives in the minutes after the July 7th attacks. Detective Inspector Ian Baker's been giving evidence at the victim's inquest. The Forces World has had 48 hours to digest the decisions in the Strategic Defence and Security Review. For some, it's been an uncertain time. 17,000 posts will go across the armed forces and another 25,000 civilian jobs at the MOD. And the decisions the government announced on Tuesday will have a long-lasting impact. In this special edition of SITREP, we'll go beyond the headlines to find out what it means for our forces in the years ahead and for Britain's position on the world stage. First, Paul Osborne on what David Cameron admitted were painful decisions in the Defence Review. So much had been leaked that there was really very little for the Prime Minister to actually announce in the Commons, but taken together the changes in the SDSR do amount to a huge shift in Britain's armed forces, the way they're run and the threats they stand ready to repel. David Cameron intervened in the final stages of torturous negotiations between the Treasury and the MOD to force a settlement, an 8% overall cut in its budget, but within that, some hard choices, choices which the Prime Minister insists could not be delayed. I know that some some people will feel let down because there are difficult decisions here. We are making a small reduction in the size of the army and uh, slightly percentage-wise larger reductions in the Navy and the Air Force. So I know there will be people who, who do feel let down by that, but it would be worse if we put off these decisions and just said we're not going to sort out the Ministry of Defence budget, we're not going to take decisions for the future. Tough news for the 7,000 soldiers, 5,000 sailors and 5,000 airmen who lose their jobs. The loss of the Harrier fleet means the end for RAF Kinloss. Group Captain James Johnston was there as the news was confirmed. The reaction was stunned silence. Clearly there's been a lot of speculation that's been running for the last few days. But actually the team were very good and we waited till the embargo of 15.30 and there was stunned silence. I think almost disbelief. But at the end of the day, the decision's been made and we have to move on. Nearby in Lossiemouth, no guarantees for the RAF base there and the whole community's nervous. It's just horrendous because we just need the RAF around here. Everything would go, I mean, the price of houses, 
staffing at the hospitals, all these kind of things. We just go because it's the RAF that are a lot. And my neighbours are mostly RAF, and I just think it would be awful. The review threw away government spending worth billions. The Nimrod spy plane has cost three times more than a space shuttle, but now it's been scrapped. The Navy keeps its two new aircraft carriers at a cost of £6 billion, though ministers made it plain they'd rather have cancelled at least one of them, and for years there'll be no planes to land on them. Short-sighted, according to Admiral Lord West, a security minister in the last Labour government. If you've got one of something... You means in every five years you've got four years' worth of it. So there's a year when you won't have it. You can bet your bottom dollar that is a year there's a fight. It's a nonsense. What is the other nonsense? They're getting rid of the Harriers. The Harriers are the only things that operate off our current carriers. We've seen how valuable they were in the Falklands, flying in against Bosnia where they supported our troops, etc., etc. And they're getting rid of these, so there's going to be an eight- or nine-year gap. Not good at all. And the cost to the Navy of keeping those carriers, the immediate loss of the Ark Royal. For the Army, more than a third of its tanks and heavy artillery go. But the Prime Minister's insisted he won't put frontline operations in Afghanistan in peril. Any time at which the Defence Chief said to me, this decision at the Ministry of Defence could in some way affect our capabilities in Afghanistan, I said no, well then we won't take it. So for instance, refitting the Puma helicopters, that goes ahead so we can be absolutely sure we've got what we need in Afghanistan. But at Catterick Garrison, there are fears soldiers may face longer tours of duty and shorter gaps between them. 19-year-old Sam Griffith's father is in the army. A lot of my friends' dads have done back-to-back tours and it's put a strain on their family. And like, yeah, it's good money, but yeah, they, they, they don't see their dads. and it's a, it's a bit selfish on them when I'm like, oh, well, I'm going to do this for my dad. And they're like, well, my dad's out, and my dad's out wherever. Trident survives, but the final decision on funding it's being delayed till 2016. There is some extra money for the special forces and the fight against cybercrime, but overall the message is that the forces must get used to having less. The Prime Minister, though, insists this review was driven by our security needs, not the need for savings. It is a proper strategy-led process. Now, some people say this has been done quickly. I accept. Five months is a relatively short period of time, but do you know what? We can't keep putting off this, these decisions. It's better, I think, for the future of the armed forces. The decisions don't get any easier. So why not get on and make them where you can to give people certainty about the great capabilities that armed services will have in the future? David Cameron called Barack Obama on Monday to reassure him the UK will remain a global power. In the foreword to the security strategy issued at the start of the week, the Prime Minister promised to give the armed forces the support they need. What critics ask now is how that promise will be kept at a time of cuts and job losses. Paul Osborne reporting while our defence analyst Christopher Lee is with me in the studio and also Michael Codner from the Royal United Services Institute. Uh, Hello to both of you. Thanks very much for your time today. Uh, Michael, uh, David Cameron there saying tough decisions, unavoidable, can't be delayed. Is he right? Uh, Yes, he is. But what we were expecting out of this review, uh, and it's very much expectations, was this... uh, this broad strategic review which would look um, into the longer term as well as addressed to today, the today. But what we've actually got is a very short-term review, and it actually says so in the Defence Review, that this is a review to 2015. There'll be another review from 2015. And so this is really very much patching up and making do um, to cope with Afghanistan with a number of big questions about decisions to be taken for the longer term, a lot of uncertainties. So you think a sticking plaster for the moment, basically? Well, that's how it's actually emerged. And when it comes to the cuts, uh, using the 
much bandied around term salami slicing. To some extent, that's what happened, although the services all of them in different ways feel very threatened, whether in the short term as for the Navy and the Royal Air Force or after 2015 for the Army. Uh, Christopher, on the actual decisions that have been announced, uh, are you in agreement or do you see any gaping mistakes there? The gaping mistake, and it's appropriate, isn't it? You know what today is, 21st of October, Trafalgar Day. Mm -hmm. The Navy must be absolutely hacked off the fact that art crawl is going now. Art crawl should go, yes. But when he talks about immediate decisions, things that have to happen immediately, then Ark Royal should have stayed, the Harrier should have stayed, well, and also... Why should they both have stayed? Uh, because if you wanted to go and do a particular job, let's say in the Eastern Mediterranean, or pull people out of a country or whatever, this is an ideal sort of, uh, sort of equipment you've got. The other part of it is training people, keeping people in, in training in flying hours, in maintenance hours, and the use of the idea of maintaining vessels of that size, you want to keep them going. You can't just do it on illustrious. What do you think, Michael? Are you in agreement there with what Christopher's saying? Well, broadly, um, the argument in favour of getting rid of basic carrier capability for a few years is strategic focus. We're so focused on Afghanistan that um, if we have choices about which operations we do, it won't be one that needs carriers. And, and people tend to characterise carriers as these high-level fighting stuff that we'd only use alongside the Do you think it should Americans. have been called strategic Afghanistan and security Well, review? you could say that. But the issue is that carriers are there for the unexpected um, and short-notice unexpected in particular when you haven't got land that you can put stuff on in advance. Christopher? I think this, you, you were saying, Michael, you know, it's not really a strategic view. We have to wait until next month in Lisbon at the NATO summit. That's when the strategic review takes place. Nothing to do with what the uh, Foreign Secretary announced last Monday. I mean, that was just a bit of funny sort of paper. <laughs> not, we not won't to be say read. what you described it as before we went on air, but uh, let, let's move on for the moment. Stay here, both of you with us for the moment. Thank you. Uh, the Prime Minister was insistent there'll be no cuts to the support for troops in Afghanistan, but some may face an uncertain future when they return home. Our reporter, Will Inglis, is at Camp Bastion. I asked him what the reaction was there to the Defence Review. Well, Kate, it's a pretty career-limiting move for any serviceman or woman to speak out publicly about this sort of thing, but informally, it's fair to say that reactions range from worries about redundancy, indeed along the lines of the Harrier pilot who famously tackled the Prime Minister at PJHQ earlier in the week, through to worries about air cover if the next war happened to be somewhere that carrier-based aircraft might otherwise be key. What about this speculation troops could face longer tours of duty in future and shorter breaks between them? Clearly this is, as you say, all a little bit uh, speculative and the timescale hasn't been absolutely confirmed. But with one fewer brigade in the army, that time in the sun is going to come around sooner. Now, there's only a commitment in the review not to change combat infantry units involved in ops here, not the wider brigade formations they're part of. So as units start to move between brigades with this move towards multi-role units and... One of these brigades disappears altogether. It's going to become, in the short term at least, much harder to predict when any given unit might deploy. And are there fears some of those serving in Afghanistan now could come home to find themselves facing redundancy? Well, it's going to take six months for the full details of the redundancy package to become apparent. We do know, though, that the plan is for people who haven't volunteered for redundancy not to be selected to be made redundant while on ops or within six months of deploying. It's not clear yet either what portion of this 17,000 reduction in forces manpower is actually going to be achieved by redundancy and what portion by simply cutting recruitment. The FBS 
Well, let's have a look in more detail at how each of the armed forces will be changed by the Defence Review and what it will mean in the years ahead. We'll start with the Army. Here's a reminder of the main announcements. I want to be clear, there is no cut whatsoever in the support for our forces in Afghanistan. We will retain a large, well-equipped army, numbering around 95,500 by 2015, that is 7,000 less than today. In terms of the return from Germany, half our personnel should be back by 2015 and the remainder by 2020. Tanks and heavy artillery numbers will be reduced by around 40%. We will also review the structure of our reserve forces to ensure we make the most efficient use of their skills, their experience and their outstanding capabilities. Christopher Lee and Michael Codner are still with me and we're also joined by Major General Patrick Cordingley who commanded the Desert Rats in the first Gulf War. Uh, Major General Cordingley, thanks for your time today. Um, Do you think in another five to ten years' time, given what we've heard this week, you could do again what you did in the first Gulf War? That's clearly not possible. Um, To keep 9,500 in Afghanistan, you need an army at the same strength that it is now, and it's going to be reduced by 7,000. My understanding is that probably means that you could deploy 6,500 to 7,000 troops on an operation like Afghanistan. And, of course, it may actually dictate that we decide not to go so willingly to do these types of uh, operation alongside the Americans and, and within NATO in future. Fewer troops, fewer tanks, but overall it could have been worse, couldn't it, for the army? Oh, I think that's very true. And what wasn't clear from what the Prime Minister was saying is that I hope that these tanks and guns are going to be mothballed because I know you need to keep people trained, but if they're there, sitting there for should such an occasion where you need tanks and heavy guns like that again, you could actually hopefully get the Territorial Army involved and other people involved and train up quite quickly um, to get them back into service. Where do you think the decisions uh, this week leave us in terms of on the global scale? I mean, you say we, we, we might choose that we didn't want to do another Afghanistan. What do you think our objectives should be? I think it would have been much better if we'd just openly said, look, we're a bit worried about expeditionary warfare. We've been involved slightly unsuccessfully, not from what the soldiers and sailors and airmen are actually doing, but from a strategic point of view, in expeditionary warfare alongside the Americans and now at NISAF. Perhaps we ought to stand back from this like most of the nations in NATO and say, actually, our armed forces are designed to protect the country and our national interests, not to do quite the way we're going about things at the moment. Uh, on, on the specifics, though, um, about this idea of longer tours and shorter recovery periods. Is that a, a real risk? Not, not keen on that. The, the, uh, the, the whole army is built on six-month tours. It's been doing it since 1917. It's completely used to being a six-month operation, if you like. And what I would do is cut out R&R, and I heard a whole lot of people saying, Don't, how dare you do that? But that's very disruptive. It's very expensive in flights and so on and so forth. So you would get a little bit of a longer tour from most of your people. That would seem to be a sensible thing to do. But we're not geared for going for, like the Americans, nine months for a year. Although, in command point of view, that does make a lot of sense. But they can do it. But actually, the soldiers say now need to be rotated. And what's your reading of the impact on morale of this week's announcements on the army? I think it's absolutely fine, with the exception of allowances. I mean, there was something said about large sums of money being cut out of allowances, and that will affect morale much more so than actually, am I going to be made redundant? Because 
almost certainly people have a sort of suspicion whether they're in that bracket or not. They can't cut off recruiting because that makes life very difficult in terms of career structures. But if you knew your allowance, which you're dependent on, is going to be cut, that's bad news. And I just pray, and I know that the head of the army is really keen to defend all those allowances if humanly possible. All right, Major General Patrick Cordingley, thanks for now. We'll come back to you later in the programme, so stick around. Uh, Well, the RAF has been asked to take much of the strain of the Defence Review. Let's quickly remind ourselves of the main points there. RAF manpower will also reduce to around 33,000 by 2015. Again, that is a reduction of 5,000. Inevitably, this will mean changes in the way which some RAF bases are used, but some are likely to be required for the army as forces return from Germany. Getting to grips with procurement is vital. Take the Nimrod programme, for example. It has cost the British taxpayer over £3 billion. The number of aircraft to be procured has fallen from 21 to 9. The cost per aircraft has increased by 200% and it's over eight years late. Today, we are announcing its cancellation. We have decided to retire the Harrier, which has served this country so well for 40 years. It is a remarkably flexible aircraft, but the military advice is clear. We should sustain the Tornado fleet as that aircraft is more capable and better able to sustain operations in Afghanistan. Andrew Brooks is the director of the Air League. I asked him about the impact of losing the Harrier. It's not the end of the world for the RAF. I mean, it's it's very disappointing for all the you know the crews and the people who, who loyally supported it. But at the end of the day, it's been assessed that something has to go because you want to save money. And if you get rid of the Harrier Force, you save upwards of a billion over the rest of its life. Um, and so the Air Force has had to make a, a decision as to when the government says you've got to choose and you can only have two in effect, which is one you're going to give up. And um, for a variety of reasons, not least it, the longer range in strike capability, the, the bigger weapons fit, the two-man crew against one, etc., etc., it's decided that the tornado is the better option for Afghanistan and beyond than the Harrier. And, and do you think then that Liam Fox is right when he says the Britain will still be able to project air power and the right kind? Yeah, because the right kind isn't bombing. It isn't sort of mass dropping bombs on people. We, we've tried that, and, and it, it isn't the way to win hearts and minds. It's the long-range precision strike capability. Now, that can come from a, a submarine with a cruise missile but it can also come from a long-range airplane with all the wonderful reconnaissance sensors weapons that the tornado has and that will go into and lead us into um the joint strike fighter when it comes so if you have to make a choice and you have to make difficult decisions i think the government has made the right decision in that respect and as far as the RAF is concerned, we know that Kin Loss is going. Uh, question mark over RAF Lossy Mouth. Um, what, what, what more have you learned since we've had the results of the Defence Review? Well, I mean, it's not just. I mean, there's future rationalisation of more than, 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 than just Lossy Mouth. I mean, there's wittering, there's leaming. There's whole, you, you, we can all sit down and say, hey, can, can the nation support, keep these? bases open. I suspect that all of the ones we've talked about will have a future. The army's bringing, what, 20,000 people back from Germany. They're going to want lovely places in which to go, ideally with runways, ideally 
close to wh where the ranges are, etc., etc. So I would expect that the ones we're talking about, because the Air Force has invested such a lot in accommodation and quarters, that the Army will be in there like, you know, like Flynn. They'll say these are great bases. From the Air Force point of view, sad we're giving up old bases. From the locals' point of view, I think they all will have a life simply because the Army needs places to move into. And finally, uh, given the announcements that have been made this week, how would you sum up the kind of RAF and its capabilities that we will have in the next five to ten years? We will still have an awesome capability in the sense of Typhoon, top of the range. There's only one airplane in the world can beat it, and that's the F-22. We'll get Joint Strike Fighter, which is F-22 plus 15 years when it comes to the sort of software on board. We're going to get a new breed of tankers, FSTA, are coming in. We're, we're, it's a sad that we're going to get rid of Sentinel. It's just arriving. But again, when it comes to I-Star assets, I think we're doing very well in keeping, if you're ahead of the game. The great sadness for me is the MRA4. I mean, we are an island nation. Our naval colleagues tell us daily we're an island nation. And to lose an MRA4 capability to patrol the seas, to patrol the, ch the choke points, to look after the submarine threat, to go down to the Falklands, to look after the seas in case, an air God forbid, an airliner comes down, that, to me, is, is the great gap that we have in a Royal Air Force that I want to be part of. And therefore, that's the one that really saddens me. We're, we're so strapped that we are basically giving up the maritime patrol aircraft capability, which, as an island nation, I think is crucial if we're going to have any pretense to be a major player around the seas as well as the land. This is BFBS. Sit rep. Let's turn now to the Navy. It gets the two new aircraft carriers it wanted, though one will be effectively mothballed almost immediately, but it loses the Ark Royal and the surface fleet faces cuts as well. Here's a reminder of the main announcements. Total naval manpower will reduce to around 30,000 by 2015. That is a reduction of 5,000. And by 2020, the total number of frigates and destroyers will reduce from 23 to 19. But the fleet as a whole will be better able to take on today's tasks from tackling drug trafficking and piracy to counter-terrorism. We will build both carriers but hold one in extended readiness. It will allow us to buy the carrier version of the Joint Strike Fighter, which is more capable, less expensive, has a longer range and carries more weapons. Let's talk to Professor of Naval History, Eric Grove, from Salford University. Professor, thanks for your time today. The Security Review says the forces must be reformed to meet different future threats, and yet the government is spending £6 billion on aircraft carriers that won't have a strike capability for 10 years. Exactly right, and that's the big hole in the Defence Review. I was pleased that Andrew Brooks has just said how important the... Um, the uh the uh, Nimrod MRA-4s are, and it's a great shame that they've gone too. But in fact, the blow that has been struck to our maritime air capability in the next decade is quite remarkable. It, there is no logic at all in building aircraft carriers without aircraft that can fly from them. And scrapping the Harriers is one of the most extraordinary decisions I could possibly imagine. Even in Afghanistan, the Harrier has proved itself to be a more efficient platform. But if it, if it came down to the choice between the Tornado and the Harriers, if it was down to that, you still think so? 
a tornado every time. Even the pilots I've met of tornadoes don't believe in them. The aircraft are obsolescent. They need money spent on them. This is pure sectarianism of the Royal Air Force of the worst kind. And I find it completely incredible. I mean, to say that we need power projection, we need to project ourselves around the world. The government says this. They're absolutely right. But they're doing away with the capabilities to allow us to do it in the near term. I sincerely hope that the Argentinians aren't planning something in the next 10 years. Uh, on that point, Michael Codner, uh, do you really think uh, the Argentinians are some, some, somebody we should be worrying about? Uh, I, I don't say the Argentinians, no, but the issue of overseas territories and the unexpected all over the place. So we're a global archipelago and what could happen anywhere? Uh, Christopher Lee, do you think um, for the next 10 years we can take a, a capability holiday with the aircraft carriers? Never. Never, you can't do that. Not the if the Prime Minister seems to think we can. Well, the Prime Minister's been listening to the Army, obviously, and the Royal Air Force. Although the Royal Air Force has probably got more to gain by having aircraft carriers because they'll be flying a lot of the operations from them. I think that, you know, Eric Grove is right, and so was Andrew Brooks, very right about the biggest problem there uh, is getting rid of the, uh, the, the Nimrods, the Sentinels, the uh, MRE force. They're not simply looking for uh, Russian submarines, for example. They are very good weapon systems against terrorism. They protect Trident, um, very good Trident cover. They're intelligence gatherers, and, most, and, and also they're good search and rescue. I mean, I, I'm a sailor. I wouldn't want to get lost in the Western approaches without a Nimrod around. Uh, Professor Grove, much has been made ahead of this defence review about the Navy's role as as a deterrent to future conflict. Uh, How does that stand now, do you think? Well, in terms of maintaining the surface fleet, the First Sea Lord says we can maintain maintain commitments even with a reduced surface fleet, uh, maintaining a, a nuclear deterrent as well, albeit pushed somewhat to the right, which will, might, might well make it cost more, even in the reduced uh, submarines that we're thinking of, apparently of uh, procuring. I, th- I think that's right. But having a carrier strike capability, which the government itself defends, but saying we only need it from 2020 onwards, it's rather like the interwar period when we had a 10-year rule. There would be no war for 10 years. We only abandoned that in 1932, which anybody who understands civil Simple, um, simple arithmetic can understand was a few years too late. All right, Professor Grove, interesting as ever. Thank you very much for your time today. Um, Christopher, I'd like now just to sort of, in summing up really, sort of you to imagine a scenario perhaps uh, in which uh, it would really put to test the decisions that have been made this week. Uh, what would that be? Okay, first thing to remember, since the Second World War, there have been 74 major wars, skirmishes, battles, whatever. We've predicted three so this is a tough call. Uh, you can go into what might happen in China, and therefore the British would have some uh, involvement. You could have Iran, for example. The Israelis decide to flatten the top of the nuclear facilities in Iran. The British are asked to stand by in the eastern Mediterranean. Perhaps unlikely, but it's the unlikely that you have to plan for as well as the very likely. We've never got the very likely right, except in three, three, three occasions, Korea, confrontation and Northern Ireland. Uh, Major General Patrick Cordingley, uh, I believe you're still on the line. Um, in that scenario that Christopher Lee has just painted out, what role would the army have, do you think? Well, it's going to be well equipped to cope with something, let's say, in the Yemen or the Horn of Africa. The problem comes now with if you have some, as has been alluded to, some sort of major economic problem where China and Russia cause a problem or America decides to do something and drags us in and NATO in with it, we're not really very well equipped at the moment to cope with that in the way that the army is being drawn down. I think that is a, a real fear for me. Uh, Michael Codner. 
Well, just um, following from what Patrick said, uh, there is the issue of if we're going to fight big wars with our NATO um, um, allies and friends, uh, what specifically should Britain uh, contribute? And I suppose the arm, ar ar argument against combined arms and heavy armour is there are a lot of other nations that have got that stuff, so why do we need it specifically? I'm just putting that argument forward. I'm not trying to defend it. Mm. It's, it's, it's still, still true, and I think the general might back me up on this. Uh, we talk about cuts in a very sort of demoralising way, but we're still, I think, number four in terms of capability in the world. And we still have one big obligation, and that is whether we like it or not, we go along to some extent to help the Americans. Uh, Major General Patrick, accordingly, do you still see us as a big player on the global stage? Yes, just, just. I mean, I was a great one believing that we didn't, didn't need to have these cuts, the big... £38 billion pound hole uh, could have been filled. It was over a period of time. But nevertheless, we've done it. We're just in the top league, but only just. All right. Um, Christopher, I uh, was just wondering about the Defence Reform Unit and how key this might be to sorting out the long-term inherent problems that we have in defence. Well, country. I mean, Liam Fox, the Defence Secretary, thought this was going to do it. it so ain't going just to just do explain it. to people what it okay, is exactly. OK, basically, you have a Defence Reform Unit because you've got to look at the MOD. It's the wiring diagram of the MOD that's at the cause of a lot of problems. And it's also the wiring diagram that has brought in, for example, a lot of the military. We shouldn't leave the military out of this criticism. It's not just the ministers who've made a cock-up of things. Quite often it's been the military, a military at a very high level. But this organisation so is to reform... Oh, for example, if you take a... You know, you want to build a ship and you keep adding things to it, the cost of the ship goes up, and then what happens? It takes longer to do it, and then you get into a position you're going to cancel it. So so, Michael Codner, is the key to all of this actually sorting out our massive procurement mess in this country? Well, uh, procurement, military procurement, is a very difficult task. And for all the reforms, it's never going to be perfect. One has to accept that. It's a very high-risk thing. But this business about reform generally and procurement in the middle of all of that, the problem is the Defence Reform Unit doesn't actually at the moment know what it's scope or its function is going to be and Lord Levine, the great reformer of the 1980s who's leading it, hasn't got much time on his hands to do it, nor indeed does he have much time to sort it all out. And there are 157 departments and very few people know what they all do. They probably are writing about 38 of them but the rest is a mystery as Lord Levine found when he was just Peter Levine in the 1980s. As we have been saying, as I keep saying, we will be revisiting this subject I'm sure and of course we'll have a lot more to talk about in coming weeks and of course in five years time. Major General Patrick Cordingly, Christopher Lee, uh, Michael, Michael, thank you, Codner, thank you very much from Rusi. Great to have you here on the programme today. My thanks to you all. Obviously that's not the end of the debate over the SDSR and as it plays out over the weeks and months ahead we'll keep you up to date on SITREP. Thanks for listening. Speak to you. See you next time.